You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, uh, before we jump in, I just want to say this is actually a significant week because uh, this week, my wife Sharon and I celebrate 10 years together. So someone, if you have a medal, give it to her for dealing with me for 10 years. Just thank you, sweetie, for an amazing 10 years. And, um, you know, our marriage almost didn't happen for a few reasons, one of which, uh, when we were dating, we were sitting outside, looking at the sky, holding hands, and uh, I don't know where, I forget how this even came up, but she just randomly blurts out to me, you know, as she looks at the sky, you know, one time I saw a UFO. <laughs> this is not something you tell someone you're six months into dating about to get engaged. This is like first, second date type information. I'm like, tell me more about that. She said, well, it was a triangle and had green lights. Thanks, babe. That's very interesting. <laughs> to which I was like, what? You did not see a UFO. And she looked me in the eye and said, I saw a UFO. <laughs> I'm like, what other mythical things do you believe in that I should know about? Like Loch Ness Monster? Oh, you mean Nessie? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And so I, I, I really had a moment there where I'm like, I don't know if I can marry this woman. Come to find out now, UFOs are like a verified fact. So I guess I was the fool. But my point is, you know, maybe in a relationship or uh, at a new job, you start out excited, and then every now and then you have these moments where you're like, huh? That doesn't make sense. I don't know if I can do this. And sometimes that happens when we read the Bible, doesn't it? Like, even as we covered the book of Ephesians, like, are you kidding me? Ephesians 1, he predestined me before the world began. He adopted me into his family. He redeemed me and justified me. Ephesians 2, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. Now I'm alive in Christ. God loves me no matter what. Ephesians 3 and 4, God has given me the church as a family to come alongside me. I mean, this is amazing. Ephesians 6, oh, wives, submit your husbands. Oh, I'm not so sure about that one, but okay, I, I get it now. And, and children, obey your parents. I can get down with that, but whoa, 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 Chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your masters. Huh? I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I had just made Jesus Lord of my life, and I, I, you know, Jesus had become everything to me. I was just so in awe of Christ, and I started reading the Bible, and I got to Ephesians 6, verse 5 through 9, and went, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not sure I can be a Christian. Because if God affirms slavery, that's not a God I want to follow. And part of the challenge and the beauty of expository preaching, which is what we do here, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, is you don't get to skip over these verses. God decides what we preach every week, and so God has decided slavery for us this week. I'm getting all the fun text lately, aren't I? Last time I got wives to submit to your husbands, this time I get slaves. I almost messed with one of our residents, Andrew, who wants to preach. I was like, all right, you're up this week. You get to cover slavery. Well, here's, here's really what I want to do as we cover this, these verses this morning. 
I don't know about you, but I've always wanted to be a part of a church that addresses the elephants in the room and doesn't avoid them. Just presses in. And what we're going to do this morning is address the elephant of slavery. And it's, it'd be really easy for us to skip over slavery and jump into some practical application about employees and employers and, and how we're supposed to view our work, which we will. But the, that still leaves room for the question, does the Bible approve of slavery? And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and we're really glad you're here, I want you to understand and know that I know you have a lot of skepticism. I'm, it might have been affirmed by these verses. Like, how can the Bible say, love your neighbor and then approve slavery? I know the Bible can seem incongruent at times, but I want you to see this morning that the Bible actually does oppose slavery. And so my goal is for you non-Christian is for you to leave saying, wow, this isn't saying what I think it's saying. And then I also want for you, Christian or non-Christian, to leave with some motivation for work as you head into the office tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. This renewed vigor to step into the office or to the hospital or to the classroom. So those are our two goals. And we're going to do that by covering explanation and exhortation. Explanation is, what does the Bible say about slavery? And exhortation, what does that mean for us today? Explanation, exhortation. Let's start first with explanation on this whole slavery thing. Notice this text starts out by saying slaves or bondservants, some other translations. To which you and I go, what the heck? Huh? Huh? And that's because we're 21st century Western, most of us Americans, and we think of slavery as the African slave trade in the 18th and 19th centuries. That's mostly what we learned about slavery in high school and middle school. And that's where millions and millions of Africans were stolen from their homes and taken to Europe or America and enslaved and whipped and mistreated. Frederick Douglass, actually, who grew up a mile from here in Fells Point, actually wrote a historical account of his first slave master. And I hesitate to read this, but I, it's important for us to know. Douglas says that his slave master, I think this is the 18th or 17th century, he was a cruel man, hardened by a long life of slaveholding. Douglas's slave owner would, would at times seem to take great pleasure in whipping a slave. I have often been awakened at the dawn of day by the most heart-rending shrieks of an own aunt of mine whom he used to tie up to a joist and whip, till she was literally covered with blood. No words, no tears, no prayer from his gory victim seemed to move his iron heart from his bloody purpose. I hesitate to read an account like this, but I read it for two reasons. It reminds us, first of all, the horrors that took place in our own nation not too long ago. And then secondly, we need to be reminded and assured that this is not the kind of slavery that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians chapter 6. And if that's your image of slavery as you read Ephesians 6, this passage will just confuse you. To give you a more appropriate understanding of the context that Paul is writing in the first century, about one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. In fact, in the city of Ephesus, one-third of the people in the church we're slaves. So if this were the church of Ephesus, look to your left and your right, the people next to you, one of you was a slave, statistically. Some of you are like, I'm a medical resident. I am a slave. <laughs> so we have to understand that this is a significant part of the population in the church, in the city. And Paul is addressing these Christians who are slaves, who are amongst Christian brothers and sisters, 
that genuinely were commanded to love these slaves, care for them, call them brothers, provide for them when they're in need. And in fact, some of the slaves in the Ephesian church that Paul is writing to had leadership positions in the church over their masters. This is a historical fact. In fact, in the, in the early 2nd century, there was a letter written to the pagan emperor Pliny the Younger by a Roman magistrate. And this Roman magistrate tells Pliny the Younger, the emperor, that he's trying to find out more about this new growing cult called Christianity. And he tortured two female slaves who were deaconesses in the local church to find out more about Christianity. What does that tell us? That means that these two female deaconesses who were slaves had some level of leadership and authority in this early church. And the, the very nature of slavery was, was quite different in the first century in Rome. One commentator writes that slaves did not merely do menial work. They did nearly all the work, including oversight and management in most professions. Many were educated better than their owners. They could own property, even other slaves, and were allowed to save money to buy their freedom. No slave class existed, for slaves were present in all, but the highest economic and social strata, many gained their freedom by age 30. And so there are a couple things that distinguish the version of slavery we find in Ephesians 6 from American chattel slavery uh, in, in the 7th and 18th centuries in America and Europe. First of all, Roman slavery was not racially, racially based. All races were slaves. Secondly, many people actually sold themselves into slavery in Roman times so they can get citizenship and protection or so they could have their needs provided. Thirdly, slavery in Roman times was not for life like it was in the South in America. Many people, many slaves gained their freedom, purchased their own freedom by age 30. And slaves in the Roman Empire did not work just menial jobs. There was a, a white-collar slave, if you will. So this is quite different. In fact, uh, one writer in his book, Everyday Life in Ancient Rome, which is a really good book about the social context of the New Testament, and it was actually published here in Baltimore by Johns Hopkins University Press, just down the street at, on Charles Street. And this... Uh, this author, Dr. Lionel Casson, writes, There were multitudes of Greek and Roman slaves. The gangs in the mines are on the vast ranches who lived lives as hopeless and full of hardship as slaves on the sugar plantations of Brazil or the cotton plantations in the American South. But in the days of the Roman Empire, there were also many, a great many, who were able to escape from slavery and mount the steps of the social ladder, in some cases, to the very top. So let's be clear, there were some very brutal cases of slavery in the first century, but some of it, a lot of it, was not. What made the difference? Who your master was. Who your master was. That made all the difference. So some climbed the ladder, as I said, all the way to the top, inheriting millions, literally millions. In fact, Felix, the governor in Acts 23, the, the, the governor who stands trial and, and, and judges Paul, was a formerly freed slave. The slave turned into a ruler of a territory. It was common in the, in the first century. So this is sort of what we're talking about with slavery. Very common, complex, in some cases brutal, in some cases not so brutal, in some cases it was actually a betterment of your life. And so what, what does the Bible say about this whole slavery thing? Let me just point out a few things. When you read this text, you might read it and think, Okay, why is Paul not outlawing slavery for Christians? That was my first question, probably yours too. Why don't you just come in, Ephesians 6, slavery is wrong, masters, free all your slaves, slaves, don't listen to your masters, 
Why is Paul seemingly condoning the practice here, letting it stand? Is he condoning it? And, and the answer is no, emphatically no. None of the biblical writers approve or affirm of slavery. This, this by the way, is the subject of heated debate in history. Entire denominations have been forged around people's views of this issue. So let me just point out a few things. Why doesn't Paul say more here? Since he's writing about Christian living, why not just ban slavery for all Christians? Well, one of the reasons is because Christians were politically powerless in the first century. In many cases, Christianity was unlawful, and so they had no political power, no influence, and any attempt to end slavery was brutally snuffed out by the Romans. I'm talking 400 people crucified instantly. Second reason Paul doesn't just outlaw it right away is because slaves were being freed so easily and so constantly in the first century. It was very common for a slave to have been freed. And so if slaves were being freed constantly and continuously, he can focus more on compelling Christians to love their slaves, even in some cases, I'll tell you in a moment, freeing them, rather than fighting the whole oppressive system. And the third reason he doesn't just outlaw it here is because this issue is, and this letter is more addressing Christian living than it is social systems. Paul is in Ephesians 6 is not trying to reverse the socio-political order in Rome. Paul is not trying to do social revolution here. He's focused on teaching Christians how to live in the sinful world they find themselves in. Ephesians is, is written more like a letter to your kids than it is a, a manifesto to the government. This is not Paul's letter from Birmingham jail. This is his letter to his spiritual children. That being said, though, the Bible most definitely opposes slavery. Let me just give you four really quick reasons how. Number one, the Bible says love your neighbor. Love your neighbor at the very least means don't own them, I'd imagine. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be owned. I don't want to be enslaved. So I should not do that to my neighbor. Second reason the Bible opposes slavery is neither slavery nor masters are viewed positively in the Bible. We, we have slaves all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Israel was slaves in Egypt. Was Pharaoh viewed positively? Was that slavery in Israel viewed positively? No. God sets them free from slavery. Joseph was a slave. Daniel was a slave. Many Old Testament characters were slaves. Never is that viewed positively. Third reason is the gospel is freedom from slavery. It's literally one of the illustrations of the gospel in the Bible. Christianity is a free the captives religion. A lot of people, especially in liberal cities like Baltimore, you go to Johns Hopkins University or some of these other, you know, hoity-toity universities, they'll say Christianity is the white man's religion. It's the source of, uh, it's grown because of colonization. White people came, took over the culture of indigenous people, and forced them to, to take this white man's religion. That sounds progressive, except it's not based in reality. Do you know 84.1% of Christians in the world today are people of color? 84%. That doesn't sound like a white man's religion to me. Did you know Pew Research says that if you're black you're 10% more likely to be a Christian than if you're white. And that's at least partially because if you're black, your ancestors clung to a Savior who promised freedom for the oppressed in a world that oppressed them. The gospel is a free the captives religion. Brothers and sisters of color, you come from men like Josiah Henson, 
a former slave in the 18th century from Maryland who spent time in Montgomery County, who fled to Canada for his freedom, whose, whose dad had his ear cut off by his master. He's actually the, the inspiration of the groundbreaking novel book, Uncle Tom. And that, that book served as a mirror to show the, the horrors of American slavery. And Henson, at 18 years old, heard a sermon. And he said that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tasted death for every man. For the high, for the low. For the rich, for the poor. For the bond, the free. The Negro in his chains, the man in gold and diamonds. And Henson's response to hearing that sermon was, I stood and heard it. It touched my heart, and I cried out, I wonder if Jesus Christ died for me. Josiah Henson, this slave in Maryland, was overwhelmed by the idea that this poor, despised, he's, quote, abused creature, deemed by others fit for nothing but unrequited toil, but mental and bodily degradation, was known and loved by Jesus himself. And he said, oh, the blessedness and sweetness of feeling that I was loved. I would have died that moment with joy and kept repeating to myself the compassionate Savior about whom I have heard loves me. He loves me, a slave. Henson eventually escaped slavery and went on to become a Christian preacher. This is why we have so many powerful Negro spiritual songs. It's why most of the historic black abolitionists throughout history, like Harriet Tubman, nicknamed Moses, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Martin Luther King Jr., were all followers of Jesus Christ. And they used the Bible to fight back against slavery. Because even when they were whipped and abused and treated as three-fifths of a human being, they knew Christ was the great abolitionist who sets us free from the chains of sin. And when one day set these brothers and sisters free from the chains of their slaveholders. Even when those slaveholders justified their cruelty in the name of Christ, sinfully. And so, since Christianity is a free the captives religion, it's obvious that slavery would be wrong for Christians. Final last reason why we know slavery is wrong as we approach Ephesians 6 is Paul's teaching itself undermines slavery. In 1 Timothy 1.10, which is a letter to the same church in Ephesus, Paul calls human tra trafficking a vile sin. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1, enslavers are in the list of people that Paul calls disobedient, ungodly sinners. So here's my question for you. If you were like, yeah, the Bible does approve of slavery, look at this verse. Why would Paul call enslavers vile, ungodly sinners in 1 Timothy 1? And then be saying in Ephesians chapter 6, a letter to the same churches in the same region, that slavery is just fine. It's because that's not what's happening here. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul is calling out slavery as sin. And here in chapter 6, he's telling the Ephesian church how they ought to live in the world they find themselves in. And along with that, Paul taught the equality of all individuals. What Paul would have said, and is saying, it would have been revolutionary in the first century. When he said things like in Galatians 3, he says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Translation, all of you are equal, slave and free. That undermines slavery. Further, we know Paul told the believers in the, in the Corinthian church that if they could obtain their freedom, they should do it. 
If he was for slavery, why would he say that? And perhaps the most remarkable book in the Bible that addresses the topic of slavery is the book of Philemon, which is like 30 verses. Go ahead and read it on your own like this afternoon. In the book of Philemon, Paul speaks of a runaway slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus meets Paul, becomes a Christian, but then Paul actually sends Onesimus back to his master, Philemon, to which you probably think, oh great, that's further confirmation. Paul approves of slavery. He's sending this runaway Christian slave back to his master until you actually read the letter. Paul says to Philemon, verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Slaves were not sons. They were not children. They were property to be used and abused. But Paul calls this runaway slave his child. Then he goes further, verse 12. He says, I am sending Onesimus back to you, Philemon, sending my very heart. Do you see the affection here for this slave? This verse surpasses any expression of love for any individual Christian in all of Paul's writings in the New Testament. He sends him back to Philemon, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Paul then tells Philemon to receive this runaway slave Onesimus as if he were Paul himself. The runaway slave is worth as much as an apostle in the minds of Paul. And Philemon better treat him as such, Paul says. Paul offers to pay anything Onesimus owes Philemon and concludes, verse 21, confident of your obedience to my commands, I write to you, Philemon, knowing that you will do even more than I say. According to Roman law, in the first century, Philemon could have branded Onesimus, tattooed his forehead saying, I belong to Philemon. He could have broken his joints, administered some other form of brutal punishment, but Paul writes in such a way that if Philemon doesn't receive this runaway slave Onesimus as a brother, he will be flat-out rebelling against his most respected mentor. And in his, last, in his list of ministry partners in the book of Colossians, Paul called each of his ministry partners slaves of the Lord, but in a tenderly tactful move. Paul does not use that language of his brother Onesimus, the slave. Rather, he calls the one person amongst his comrades in the list we know that have actually been a slave, he says, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, can you imagine what would happen if masters started treating their slaves as brothers? It would end slavery. And you see what Paul is doing? He is opposing slavery from the inside. He has no power in social political structures to do it from the outside, so he fights it from the inside, like every great revolutionary has done. Do you see how he does it? He essentially calls slaves and masters equals in Ephesians 6 verse 9, and he calls slaves and masters brothers in 1 Timothy uh, 6.2. So how can you abuse and own an equal brother? Do you see how this would undermine slavery from within? And it is through the implications of the gospel on our relationships with one another and our behavior presented by Paul in his writings and, and, and also the work of many courageous black abolitionist Christians that I mentioned earlier and the work of other Christians throughout history like Thomas Aquinas and William Wilberforce and Sojourner Truth and Charles Spurgeon and John Wesley and Frederick Douglass who fought against the hypocritical cultural Christians that kept slavery going in the name of Christ 
that actually resulted in slavery being abolished because of the work of these faithful men and women. In fact, uh, to, to American pastors who defended slavery as a peculiar institution, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century pastor in London, responded, it is indeed a peculiar institution, just as the devil is a peculiar angel and hell is a peculiar hot place. <laughs> in fact, Spurgeon and many other Christian heroes like him were so anti-slavery that he would not give the elements of communion to slaveholders. He said they were an unrepentant sin. His sermons were regularly burned in the American South. Men like him preached the gospel and eventually, eventually it led to abolishment of slavery in the Western world. John Stott summarizes this whole topic well. He says, The gospel immediately began, even in the first century, to undermine the institution of slavery. It lit a fuse which at long last led to the explosion which destroyed it. So, does the Bible condone or approve of slavery? No, no. Paul basically teaches in such a way that the gospel is able to advance through this social institution all the while, he is undermining it, attacking it, cutting it off. And eventually, eventually, Christians tend to be a little bit, can be a little bit dense sometimes. Eventually, it's killed out as these gospel truths come alive in society. That's the explanation. I hope that was helpful to you. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, there's actually some really helpful exhortation for all of us as it relates to our work. And this is really the second point, our exhortation. How does this change how we work? And, you know, one of the things I love about pastoring this church in Baltimore City is we have so many different types of people doing so many different types of work. We have no slaves here, praise God. We have some, you know, nurses who work 100-hour shifts, so it's pretty close. But, I mean, there's so many different things that you all are doing that's so inspiring. I mean, I was talking to a, one of our members last week who's a behavioral therapist, and there was this two-year-old who would not stop spitting constantly, and her job was to help this kid stop spitting, and somehow she did. I, I don't know how she did, but she did. It was inspiring. Uh, one of our members is an Under Armour designer. She's over, like, their cold clothes collection. That's pretty cool. One of our members um, just got hired by the Cowboys, so let's pray for her. <laughs> uh, Miss Tina, one of our members, own, used to own a Chinese restaurant. I really want to try her version of General Tso's chicken. We have a pilot here who uh, is a pilot for Southwest. So we're going to lay hands on him and pray for him after all the chaos this last week at the airport. Another member who's here sells ski equipment to Olympians. I know there are tons of stay-at-home moms here. There are students here and teachers here. In fact, some of you teachers have brought some of your students. We have uh, video game designers here, financial planners uh, people who work for Amazon, engineers. There's also a bunch of people who work for the government. Stop. We know you work for the NSA. Come on. <laughs> we know. You don't have to hide it from us. Every kind of work here, right? And so the question I have for you as we see this text in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 is, what motivates you to do your job? What gets you out of bed tomorrow morning? Whether you're paid or not, whether you enjoy it or not, how do you find fulfillment in your work? And on one level, you can say, I find fulfillment in the fact that they pay me, and that's an answer, I suppose, but there's an even higher motivation. 
A motivation so powerful that Paul can tell slaves to do your work with honor and dignity and fervor. And if he can sell it to a slave, can he not tell it to you, entry-level employee? And here's Paul's main idea as we just zoom over this text. And that is, you can transfer masters without transferring jobs. You can transfer masters without having to transfer jobs. You can transfer bosses without transferring bosses. What do I mean by that? I mean that the way you find fulfillment in your work, in your job, in your career, whether it's a crummy job or your dream job that you went to school 15 years for, from the, all the way at the top as CEO, from all the way to the bottom of the org chart as slave, the way you find value and significance and dignity is if you understand that as a Christian, Jesus is your boss. And if Jesus is your boss, that changes the way you view every aspect of your work. And this is very important for us to understand. Not everyone understands this, that the lordship of Jesus Christ, understanding Jesus is Lord over everything, should affect the way we do everything. To summarize in a different way, there, you could say there should be no separation between secular work and spiritual work. There's just work done unto King Jesus. And the question for all of us is, to whom do you work? For whom do you work? For whose glory are you laboring? And that's a principle we see so clearly on this passage of all places about slaves and masters. We find a message we desperately need to hear. Here, here's the really quick two points. To employees, which many of you are, work as if your leader is Christ. And to employers, which many of you are, you have people under you, lead as if your workers are Christ. Let's start with employees. He says, work as if your leader is Christ. Paul exhorts slaves and all Christians to work first respectfully. Look at the text. He says, verse 5, slaves or bond servants, which is another word for slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul says here, obey your masters. So for those of us with jobs, that's our boss, you know, the person directly above you in your org chart. Obey them, submit to their will, with fear and trembling. Fear here doesn't mean so much terror, like when they're coming down the hallway, you shake. No, 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 it more so means respect, reverence, awe. Obey them with reverence, kindness, respect. Now, why in the world would I have reverence and respect and honor for her? She's a jerk. It's Devil Wears product too out here. I'm getting donuts. I'm picking up dry cleaning. She doesn't acknowledge my value in any way. My boss is Mr. Magoo. He's an idiot. I could do his job way better than him. Why in the world would I honor him? Because by submitting to your boss, Paul says, you're submitting to Christ. Paul, look at the, this, <laughs> the extremity of this verse. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. And so the exhortation here is you have an earthly boss or a board or some sort of authority above you. Look around him or her directly up to your heavenly boss, King Jesus. Your direct report is King Jesus. And Jesus is calling you to honor the authority he has set below him over you. 
and to obey them with what? A sincere heart. Do you see that? Ooh, that's a little tough to do, isn't it? I sincerely want to do this, is what he's saying. Meaning, I'm not just doing what he says so I can get the promotion or a raise or get transferred to a different department and be done with this. I genuinely want to honor and serve and respect the person who's leading me. Why? Because, again, by submitting to the authority God has placed in your life, you're submitting to him. And if, listen, if God wanted you to have a different job or a different boss or a different task right now, his sovereign love would have led you there. But his sovereign love has led you here. This is the job. This is the authority. This is the boss. This is the task he has given you for this moment. And he's asking you to be faithful to him by submitting to them. And that's impossible to do on our own. I've had a lot of dumb bosses in my day, and every part of me wants to be like, you're dumb. How do we do that? By looking to Christ, who had the hardest job, living a perfect life and carrying our sin. And he stood and fell on the gar- in the garden saying, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. Is there any other way? And he says, not my will, but yours, Father. It was the love of the Father. It was love for the Father. And it was a desire to submit to the Father that led Jesus to do the work he didn't want to do. To submit to what he didn't want to submit to. And we follow that Savior. He gives us the power to do it and the pattern of how to do it. And so if you're an employee, fill out the dang expense report. I know it's tedious. Make the coffee with two cream and a sugar just like he likes it. Get the donuts and add sprinkles. What the heck? Attend the training you feel is unnecessary. Let, Let them have the credit even though you did the work. Speak kindly and respectfully to your boss and your coworkers. Don't badmouth them or gossip them, which is so commonplace in our American workforce. Submit sincerely with reverence to the authority Jesus has placed over you. Because ultimately, you're not giving them your submission, you're giving Christ your submission as a gift. And it's manifested in loving and serving your boss. Now, hear me, please hear me. If your boss asks you to do something that would be disobedience to Jesus, peace, I'm out. Absolutely not. You're not going to overwork me and underpay me. I'm not going to enable you to do that. I'm not going to sin or, or break the, the Scripture's commands so the company's bottom line increases. We're just not doing that. When I was in high school, I used to work at Ruby Tuesday, and uh, one of the managers had a beef with a person who was buying food at Ruby Tuesday, And the manager asked me to spit in that person's food. To which I said, I'm not doing that. Don't mess with your waiters or your your restaurant employees. I'm just saying. Uh, My point is, we ain't doing that. But as long as my boss does not contradict the scriptures, I'm going to work respectfully, knowing I'm really not just working for him. I'm working for the king. I'm representing the king. And I'm an ambassador for the king. And I'm taking the humble, servant-hearted posture of Christ. And that wins every time. Every time. Work as if your leader is Christ. First, work respectfully. He also says, essentially, work wholeheartedly. 
Paul says here that we work, verse 6, not by the way of eye service, ooh, this is good, as people pleasers, what a phrase, but as slaves of Christ, bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Notice again the emphasis here on the heart, work with a sincere heart, doing the will of God from the heart. This phrase from the heart means do your job with joy with zeal, with passion, with eagerness. Same idea as the last verse. Again, you have an earthly boss who's asking you to do tasks, right? Look around him or her up to your heavenly boss and do each task as if Jesus Christ himself had bestowed that task unto you. That's the idea. Jesus is your boss. We work for him. Now, here's the reality. Some of you, let's be honest, many of you are overworking. It's ridiculous. And you're overworking because Jesus isn't your ultimate boss. Your boss is. Your company is. And you're more focused on your job than you are on your marriage or your kids or your church. And if Jesus was your boss, you'd actually be Sabbathing, taking a break. I mean, breaking the the Sabbath is the only Ten Commandment Americans brag about breaking. If Jesus is your boss, you will not overwork. And some of you are underworking because Jesus isn't your boss. Your, your boss is. And because Jesus isn't your ultimate boss, you know, you do that thing where you're on your computer playing fantasy football or watching a YouTube video and your boss walks in and you quickly change the screen so they don't see. That means you're not working for Jesus. You're working for them. You don't want them to see. That's working for eye service, for people pleasing. You know, some of you are student teachers or teachers, and you know, that, that, that principal walks in, and you're under surveillance, they do that performance review, and you're just smiling a little bit more, you're just a little bit more patient with your students. Oh, come here, sweetie, let me help you out. When the principal's gone, why don't you get this, man? You know what I'm saying? Or you, some of you are moms, when you're in public, oh, come here, sweetie, I got you, and you're at home, you're like, child, I'm about to bury you in a box. Why do we do this? Because we're working for the pleasure of other people. Jesus is not our boss. We're not working wholeheartedly for him. And so we change how we work. We either overwork to earn our value and acceptance, or we underwork because people aren't watching because Jesus isn't our boss. But if Jesus is your Lord, if he's your boss, he's always watching. And I don't need to overwork. I can set boundaries. I can take a Sabbath. I can be like uh, Iman, who's one of our deacons as a nurse, who made a religious exception with Hopkins and said, I'm not working on Sundays. I want to gather with my church family. Or Nick, who's a financial planner, and said, I can't work Thursday nights. I have gospel community. I'm not overworking. Or even me this week. I was working on this sermon at 6 p.m. on Thursday night. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I overworking on this sermon? Uh, it may be subpar for that reason. But here's the reason. I need to be home with my kids having dinner. Jesus is my boss. He cares about me being a husband more than he cares about me being a pastor. What am I doing? You see what I'm saying? When Jesus is your boss, you will work wholeheartedly and you won't overwork. And you also, why, why will you not overwork? Because my value is, is, is completely in Christ, not in my performance. You see, the gospel says I'm, I'm already unimpressive. I'm already a failure. I already don't meet the standard. And me working really well doesn't get me up to the top to impress God. It just shows God, I'm just trying to, Crawl my way up to heaven doesn't work. 
And only through trusting in Jesus Christ's perfect work and perfect life do I receive the acceptance of God, so I don't need to prove myself through how I work anymore. And it also, in the same way, protects me from underworking. Why? Because I don't have to work uh, for eye service or as people pleasers because Ephesians 2 says Jesus saved us so that we would do good work. Do you, do you hear that? We don't get saved and do nothing. We don't underwork because Jesus saved us so we could do good works. And it's because of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, taking away our sin, giving us his righteousness, that now I actually want to work because he works so well for me. I don't care who's watching. He's watching. And so I'm going to crush this job because I'm going to respond to his love with my love. I'm going to nurse this patient back to health as if this patient were Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to teach this class as if Jesus Christ himself were sitting in the front row learning trigonometry. I'm going to fix those pipes to the glory of God as if this house belonged to Jesus Christ himself. I'm going to make this meal and perfectly plate this parsley because I'm going to, this is as if Jesus Christ himself is going to eat this meal. I'm going to audit those books as if these were Jesus Christ's books. I'm going to preach this sermon and prepare it as if Jesus Christ were in the front row listening to it, being exhorted and encouraged by it. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Paul says here in verse 7, To work with a good will as to the Lord. In that phrase, good will, literally means benevolence, and the idea here is that you get to give your work as a gift back to God. Your work is a gift to Him. And this is actually one of the main ideas of the Protestant Reformation. The idea of joy and significance in your vocation. The Reformers taught that it wasn't just the pastor that was called to something significant, but the everyday worker. A lot of Christians think that your sole purpose of your work is to make money and then give it to the church so I can do all the spiritual work. You know that's not a biblical view of work. You know, there's, there's a book called The Missional Entrepreneur by Mark Russell that says 74% of Christians find no connection between their faith and their work. Three-fourths. No connection between faith and work. But what Paul is saying and what the Reformers said is that whatever work you do as a Christian, you do it as a servant of Christ to the glory of Christ. And that, in effect, makes every job sacred. How is it sacred? Like, how can you have joy as a waiter or as an Uber driver or as a construction worker? Martin Luther, the, he, he teaches better on this than anyone else. He taught that the way God provides for his creation and his people is through the normal, everyday vocations of others. Just think for a second. You know the, the Lord's Prayer, the most famous prayer in the Bible? You know that phrase, give us this day our daily bread? Something we're commanded to pray? How does God answer that prayer, give us this day our daily bread? You know, uh, Psalm 136 says God feeds all of his creatures. How, how does God feed all of his creatures? God doesn't drop Krispy Kreme from the sky in the morning. And if he does, we're going to your house tomorrow morning. 
No, how does he provide for us? It's, it's a farmer who, who plants and harvests the food. And it's a transporter who transports the food to the retailer. And it's the retailer who sells the food. And it's the cook who makes and, 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 and creates the food. And it's the, for many of you, it's the Uber Eats driver who delivers the food because I go to the grocery store. And so the way God provides for his creation is through the everyday vocations of everyday people. And this changes our whole perspective, doesn't it? On all of life, that the way God provides for the world, the way he gives his good gifts, his common grace, is through your work. Luther called your work the mask of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and does all things. To say it another way, there's literally no separation between secular work and sacred work. There's just work, and you either do it for yourself to find your own significance and value in this world, or you do it unto Christ because he's already loved you more than you can imagine. And you get to give your work as a gift to him. He's your boss. I just want to love you back for loving me. And in doing so, you become God's providence manifested to the world. And let that give you joy, friends. Like, you're not just changing a diaper. You're changing a diaper for Jesus. Let that give you strength. (laughs) You're not just planting tulips in your garden. You are the hands and feet of God, adding beauty to the world that he created. As you cut hair, you're not just making 10 bucks an hour, hopefully more than that. Man, you are straightening that line for the glory of Jesus. As you police the city with integrity, not accepting bribes, Honoring the people, the citizens of the city. You are the hands and feet of Jesus protecting the city on his behalf. And if we work ultimately for Christ, that means it never matters who's watching, right? Christians should never need supervision because nothing changes no matter whose eyes are upon me. The only eyes that matter are always on me and they always love me. I love Charles Spurgeon's quote. He said, did anybody thus dream of supervising the great painters, Raphael and Michelangelo? To keep them to their work. No. The master artist requires no eyes to urge him on. Popes and emperors came to visit these great painters in their studios. But did they paint better because these grandees gazed upon them? Certainly not. Perhaps they did all the worse in the excitement or the worry of the visit. They had regard to something better than the eyes of pompous people. We have more significant eyes on us than our boss. We have the eyes of Christ on us. And if we work with this mindset, the distinction between the sacred and the secular breaks down and any and every task, however menial it may seem, falls within the sphere of the lordship of Christ Jesus and is done to please him more than anyone else. And this is why the Christians should be the best employees in the city, the best surgeons, the best teachers, the best financial planners, the best everything, because we're working for him. And we represent him no matter who's watching. My son, Aiden, started doing chores. He's about to turn six, and I have this thing, like when a child turns five, it's about time he starts contributing to the family. And so uh, he contributes to the family by taking out the trash and making a bigger mess than what was there in the first place. But we're trying to teach principles here, okay? And uh, Sherry, my wife, asked him, why are you doing these chores, son? And Aiden, we were expecting Aiden to say something like, to help out the family or to contribute or... But instead, he looks at us and says, well, Jesus gave us everything, his whole self, and so we want to work hard for him, too. It's like, you can preach my sermon, son. (laughs) And that's the whole idea here, is we are working for a Savior 
that grinded his whole life. And when he got his spiritual paycheck, perfection, he signed it in his name to your name and handed it to you and said, you get all my benefits, all my, all my pay. And on Easter morning, the check cleared. Jesus resurrected. And you really are righteous before God. And this makes us want to work like crazy. Not too much. But to be faithful to him, right? Just to put a bow on this last point, uh, I watched a video on uh, Instagram Reels this week. Your pastor surfs Instagram Reels every now and then for sermon prep. Uh, and I watched this video of this, these kids in a classroom about to take, take, take a very intimidating exam, right? And before they took this exam, the teacher handed each kid an envelope, and in the envelope was a letter from their loved ones, their parents, their brothers, sisters, friends. And before they took the exam, they, took, they read this letter telling them how much they were loved. And then they took the exam. And it was so cool watching this video because right before they took their exam, you know, usually students taking the exam, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous, this is the worst, right? You see these kids, I saw one kid go, yeah, let's go! <laughs> Why? Because when you're loved, you want to work. When you're safe, you want to work. Not for acceptance, but from acceptance. That's what we have in the gospel. Last point for employees is that we are to work expectantly. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good any employee does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or he's free. So Paul's command to work respectfully, wholeheartedly, is grounded in the knowledge of what is to come for the Christian. That the Lord in final judgment will reward workers for the good that they do, whether seen or unseen. And you can imagine a slave would have been tempted to work extra hard when his master was watching, either to avoid punishment or to get good rewards, a better treatment or a better assignment. But Paul says, don't worry about that. You don't need to. Nothing escapes your true master's gaze. However your boss may treat you, you have a Lord who at the end of each day, as you punch the time clock, as you turn off the lights in your office, he will reward you. God notices, look at the text, he notices whatever good anyone does. Notice the stress on whatever. Whatever. No Christian will miss out on being rewarded for any good they do in Jesus' name. There's a paycheck waiting for you that cannot be spoiled, cannot be ruined by inflation, cannot be taxed overly. And imagine the motivation this would give a slave washing dishes in the kitchen or caring for an animal out in the field. I'm doing this for him, and he's going to reward me even though no one else sees it. Jesus says even if we give a cup of water in his name, we will be rewarded in heaven. So work expectantly, knowing your true paycheck ain't coming now. So employees, work as if your leader is Christ, work respectfully, work wholeheartedly, work expectantly. And I'm going to zoom through this last point and run out of time. He says to employers, lead as if your workers are Christ. He says in verse 9, masters, this is unprecedented in the first century. Masters, do the same to the slaves and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality within him. So in a shocking countercultural exhortation to slaveholders, Paul tells masters, treat your masters the same way. Lead them respectfully, wholeheartedly, and expectantly. Essentially, lead them as if you were leading Jesus Christ as your employee. Why? Because if you're a Christian, even if you're the boss, you're still a slave to your true master, Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to answer to him. 
And he judges both slave and master equally. Notice Paul says here, without partiality. It's because there's no social ladder in heaven. There's no different tax brackets in heaven. You don't get treated different if you have a PhD or a GED. If you're a CEO, you don't get to sit in the centurion lounge as you wait for everyone else to get judged. There's no delta one in heaven. You can't pay your way, you can't resume your way, you can't power your way to salvation. It's in Christ's work alone, not in your work. Not in your title, not in your resume. <laughs> not in any of your accolades. And, and the reason a lot of bosses, many of you are in power, many of you have significant positions, the reason many of you use your employees as pawns, hopefully you don't, but if you do, the reason you do it, the reason you're so cruel to your employees, the reason you become Devil Wears Prada is because you're trying to seek salvation through your performance at work, and the people that are under you are in the way. Salvation has already been achieved in Christ. It's yours in Christ. And so now Jesus is telling you, don't just prove your, don't prove your worth through your work. Prove your, your love of me by loving them. This is why we should be slow to fire people. This is why we should be quick to care about people's holistic development if they're our employers. We can have a 5, 15, 30-minute conversation with our employee. Even if it doesn't help the bottom line in that moment. Why? Because master and slave have the same standard of judgment and the same Lord. So, employers don't manipulate those under your authority. Do not demean them or scare them. Treat them like Christ and his leadership has led you. Tenderly, kindly, graciously. And in Baltimore City, like many cities around the world, we are surrounded by people pushing brooms, aren't we? We're surrounded by people doing what might feel like menial work. Drivers, trash men, cleaners, waiters, dishwashers. And if you dare look down at these brothers and sisters, like they're a piece of furniture or they're a machine, if you don't treat them with dignity, then you do not have a biblical view of work or a biblical view of people. And both employee and employer, Jesus is our one master. He is our one Lord who became a slave, Philippians 2 says, humbled himself even to the point of death. Why? So we could be freed from our slavery to sin. And he becomes, in the process, the one non-oppressive master there is. And if you are working today, mainly for self-esteem, for approval, for money, for power, for status, and not for him. Mainly so you can feel good about yourself and not for God. You're a slave. Your work will drive you into the ground. And you will always be unhappy. Always be frustrated. Always be driven to no end. But if you know this morning that you are in Christ that the work has been finished, then you will work, not because you're trying to feel good about yourself, but work will become a delight, an offering of worship to love God and love people. And you'll want to serve the people around you because God served you. And then you are no longer a slave. You're liberated. Only when you see the ultimate master became the ultimate slave so that the slaves could become free can you really from the inside out 
live your life, live your work as you should. Jesus changes everything, doesn't he? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for the employees in this room, many of whom have been working for decades to get to the jobs they have. Work can quickly consume our lives, our identity, our value. I pray for every employee in this room that they would find their value in the already given love of Jesus Christ, the acceptance of Jesus, knowing that they are sinners who are unimpressive to God, unworthy to God, but yet loved because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. May they feel that peace today. May they feel that unconditional love. May they, may they feel this, uh, take away that, that, that feeling of dread for this week as they prepare for work. I pray for also for the employers in the room, those who have authority, those who have those they lead under them. May they do so with dignity. May they treat those under their authority as Christ has treated them. And may they, in judgment, be given accolades and honor for the way they love those who are under them. And ultimately, Lord, we pray for the slaves around the world that still exist, many of whom in the Eastern world are oppressed and used. God, help us to fight against slavery in all forms and fashions like your scriptures would command. And help us, God, not to become slaves to our work, but slaves only to you, the true master, Jesus Christ. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.